You're listening to Liberty Buzzard with Dustin Hammett and Thomas Umstead Jr. Episode 23. I'm Dustin Hammett. I'm Thomas Umstead Jr. Welcome to the show where we pick the news along the highway of American culture. This morning, Thomas and I, in doing our uh, minimal show prep, uh, we were looking through the articles, the news of the day. And in our last show before a live studio audience, we were discussing Amazon. And uh, I can't remember how we were talk- talking about uh, Bezos, but uh, we got on Bezos. And we're going to talk about Bezos again today because I found an article uh, that uh, is in Business Insider. According to Amazon, which, you know, is Bezos, uh, it's not our job to worry about fears we're killing retailers and destroying jobs. So the article goes down and uh, says uh, there's a Amazon senior vice president, Russell Grandinetti, said it's up to society and government to figure out how to handle the companies becoming a $178 billion disruptor in the retail sector. It's not up to Amazon to uh, to regulate itself. Um, and I largely agree with that, Thomas. I got to tell you, I'm a big fan of the free market. I am a capitalist. I believe the capitalist system is uh, is the best system, uh, as Winston Churchill says, of all. It's a terrible, terrible system, except compared to all the other systems. Uh, it's, it's a lot better than them. So uh, I think the creative destruction aspect of capitalism has shown that to that it is the most optimal system to allocate scarce resources across nation uh, to uh, to make a better society. So, you know, compared to a hundred years ago, we human beings are all better off. We're all richer, largely due to the, the system of capitalism. Now there's a lot of people out there that say capitalism is not perfectly efficient. And that's absolutely true. There's no perfectly efficient system where human beings are concerned. And yes, it's got a lot of inefficiencies out there, but by and large capitalism has shown that it is better than all the other systems combined to, uh, to, to make, our, our society better. So I think Amazon is a creative destructor. Uh, I'm a big fan of Amazon. I do most of my shopping on Amazon because I hate stepping foot in brick and mortar stores. They, it just drives me up the wall. I hate shopping and I can do it from the comfort of my home with a beer in my hand and I can do it in my underwear if I want to. So I think Amazon's absolutely fantastic. The way of the future and how we're going to allocate consumer goods, I think is going to be a transformative in Amazon and I don't think Amazon, I agree with Amazon, they, they're they not responsible for dictating or preserving jobs just for the sake of preserving jobs. I think that capitalism, uh, the our society will eventually evolve. The jobs will be um, reallocated to where they are needed and that it's going to happen to itself. So I think there's there's a lot of angst. There's a lot of hand-wringing over, you know, where are all these jobs going that Amazon's destroying? Uh, the system of capitalism will do a good job in figuring out a better way. What do you think about it, Thomas? Yeah, I think a good way to understand this is to look at other uh, technological innovations in history, and we see that the same thing happens over and over again. There's very specific, when a new technology comes out, very specific jobs are lost and everyone benefits a little and the greater efficiency benefits everyone a lot over the long run. So let's take, for instance, the tractor. So the factories that made tanks during World War II started making tractors, at least in America, like crazy. And we flooded uh, America's rural areas with these tractors that put 
millions of farmers out of work. <laughs> so um, in the Soviet Union, they were really concerned about those farmers and keeping and preserving those farmer jobs. And so they didn't embrace tractors and mechanized farming to the level that we did here in the United States. So what was the result? So we get to compare both approaches. One where it's like, we're going to embrace the future. Yes, it's difficult in the short run, but we think it's going to work out in the long run. And no, we're going to hold on to the past and preserve these old-fashioned, inefficient jobs. Well, the Soviet Union was starving. <laughs> they starved uh, on and off for decades. In fact, the only reason they stopped starving was that we had a Christian president, who um, Jimmy Carter, who thought, you know, feed your neighbors. And he would ship food that was grown on American farms with American tractors to countries in the Soviet Union that weren't as advanced as we were. And it wasn't just the tractors. It was also motivation and the other systemic problems in communism. But the, one of the biggest ones was that they were hesitant to embrace uh, this technological change. And it's not Amazon's job to pr try to preserve the past and be like, oh, these old-fashioned, inefficient jobs where somebody's standing alone in an empty uh, store for hours and hours not interacting with customers, waiting for a customer to come in. Uh, and then when they come in, they give them this very high level of customer service. That is an incredibly inefficient use of that person's time. So I was at Fredericksburg and, you know, we were there in the morning. It was a weekday and most of Fredericksburg's the old touristy shops were mostly empty and the, you know, employees were all sitting on their phones waiting for somebody to come in. Somebody would come in, they'd put their phone down and they would actually start, quote, working, unquote, whereas a uh, that same person working at Amazon would be put to a much more efficient use of their time. Now, the quality of getting a touristy experience. I don't think Fredericksburg is going to go away anytime soon, but it really is hard to justify paying twice as much for the product uh, to pay for somebody not doing any work uh, or not doing much work because their time is being used inefficiently. Uh, so I, I do think that we should embrace the future, but I also think that in doing that, we need to be cognizant of the fact that it is really hard for people whose jobs have been you know, removed because of technical innovation, especially if they're not very smart and they can't learn something new uh, very easily. That's very disruptive for that person. Somebody who had a really good farming job and they lost it, uh, that person is really hurt. Although in the farming instance, farming work is really the worst, like being out in the hot sun <laughs> with, uh, before sunscreen was invented, uh, not the greatest uh, experience. And uh, But even so, that those people were disrupted. They were forced to move to the cities and adapt a new way of life. And while their kids are better off now, like my, my, my wife, her great grandfather was a sharecropper. You know, that sharecropping job has been destroyed. There's no one doing that job. Now it's being done by a machine. Her family is better off because of the move to the city and learning of the new skills, et cetera. And that's absolutely true. Thomas, as a matter of fact, I, uh, on my mother's side come from, Sharecroppers, you know, they moved from Czechoslovakia in the early 1900s. They came over here and they did what they knew best, which was how to be peasant serfs. And they started working the land and they were sharecroppers. And eventually, just like you said, they were forced off the land. The interesting point of, of this nation, our nation was largely agrarian. I'm pulling some numbers out of my butt here, but they're going to be close. You know, 80, 90 percent, I mean, a vast majority through the history of our nation were agrarian. They were farmers. They lived on the land. They toiled mostly to feed themselves and a little bit, you know, what they didn't use to feed themselves, they 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 they, they traded away. 
Um, and it's interesting to look back on the nature of labor and the, na- the nature of our, of our uh, United States through the Industrial Revolution. Largely up until the 1940s or 50s, most of our nation was agrarian. And then it shifted. The interesting point there is, is that we are able to feed more people, not only within our country, but worldwide with less labor. I think 2% or less, or, you know, it's, it's a low number are primarily employed in agriculture and they have more product and more output than we ever did before. Um, and you know, we can go down, we can delve down into the, the science of agriculture, which we won't do today, but you, one could ostensibly go down the science of agriculture and look at, you know, how we've improved and tractors and, and the chain, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And there's goods and there's bads with it. But, you know, the, the simple fact remains is we can feed more people now with a fraction of the labor force than, than we could in the past. So, you know, creative destruction, hard at work. It, it, it was a good thing. I think what, uh, you know, and good not being necessarily a moral judgment across the board. And I think that's where people get really heartburned is, you know, they think, you know, oh, you're calling Amazon good, but, you know, they're putting all these people out of jobs. You, when you when you talk to, you know, a dirty, heartless capitalist like you and I, Thomas, we're not making grand moral sweeping judgments. Uh, what we are saying is that the society will be better off in the long run. Um, and... <laughs> What, uh, what what Maynard Keynes did say is that uh, in the long run, we're all dead. And he, I understand his point. That's kind of taken out of context. But yes, society as a whole will be better off for the disruption of, of Amazon. An interesting point that uh, the article made, uh, somebody something in the article made, I think Bezos made this point. Oh, by the way, do you say Bezos or uh, Bezos? I said Bezos. I don't know what the correct pronunciation. Jeff Bezos, by the way, is the CEO of Amazon. We should probably explain that <laughs> yeah it's if, if you don't know that that's a kind of important to know he's an important guy i mean he is probably one of the richest people in the world now if not the richest person in the world and um an interesting point in the article that came out is that donald trump our president has personally come out against amazon.com uh you know with a lot of hand wringing about what amazon is doing to the u.s postal service although i might argue that they're probably uh helping the postal service more than they're hurting them and um, that they're not paying, quote unquote, their fair share of taxes. So, you know, there's definitely an argument to be made there. Amazon and the state of Texas had that argument a while back and they worked it out uh, to everyone's great uh, benefit, I believe, in the state of Texas. But I wonder, Thomas, and I want to get your opinion on this, is our president really have heartburn about Amazon or is it a personal thing against Bezos especially in light of the fact that he has entered the political game. He has a lot of resources. Not only that, but he owns the Washington Post, you know, a part of the mainstream media, which is Donald Trump's mortal enemy. What do you think about all that mess? So I, I do think that Trump is wrong about Amazon not paying their fair share. And, that, and that's because of how the United States Postal Service operates uh, and how they're different from UPS. If you don't have a package that UPS is delivering, to your house, UPS doesn't come to your house. But the United States Postal Service is required to go to every mailbox every day, um, or at least to drive past it. So if there's even just one piece of mail, and so you have, uh, they have to go, and they're required to do this because the government doesn't function if the government can't tax people by the mail. So the United States Postal Service is, you know, one of their big roles is delivering government correspondence, right? You get a 
a paper letter from the IRS, right? The I, maybe somehow the IRS can email you, but every time the IRS wants to send me a angry letter, uh, they always do it through the paper mail, which, by the way, is a perfect time to insert our sponsor, Tom Upstat CPA. He's, he's who I hand all of my IRS letters to to take care of it for me. Tom has uh, 35 years of experience helping people uh, like you pay only their fair share in taxes. Don't let the IRS stress you out. Find out how to get Tom and his team on your team at TaxmanTom.com. Uh, but uh, back. OK. And sponsor. Uh, back to the Postal Service, it's, since they're required to make all of these deliveries for all of these little envelopes, they have these big empty trucks that they might as well put packages in. And so the cost of delivering that package is not as high as you would think because they're still required to make that delivery. It, the economics of it are very different than the economics of UPS or FedEx. And it's hard to make an apples to apples uh, comparison between them because FedEx isn't required to come to your house uh, to deliver an envelope, you know, for 50 cents. I mean, the, that doesn't work <laughs> delivering. The, if the uh, postal service has one envelope for you, somebody paid 50 cents for you or one postcard, let's say it was 25 cents to be delivered. They have a truck go to your house or go to your mailbox and deliver it. That is not financially feasible. Just the gas is probably more expensive than that. Um, and so they're hoping that you're going to have more than one piece of mail and your neighbor's going to have one more than one piece of mail, but every year the amount of mail that gets sent drops because we, you know, text message uh, and they still have to run all those trucks that are getting more and more empty. Amazon is coming in and bailing out the United States by giving them all of this, you know, business. And Trump is like, no, we want to have less business for the postal service so that it will be able to make less money. I don't know. That doesn't make sense to me. I don't know what his motive. I I suspect that he just doesn't understand the the economics of it. Um, Maybe he's trying to get back at Bezos for the Washington Post, but I don't feel like the Washington Post is really one of uh, Trump's hit lists. He, He tends to pick on CNN and the New York Times far more like the Washington Post isn't exactly on his horizon um, as much. So I, I don't know. Maybe that's his motivation, but I don't think so. Well, you know, anytime Donald Trump is involved, you have to assume that there's some type of personal vendetta. Uh, he seems to take things very personally. And so that's always in the back of my mind. I won't I won't say it is. I won't say it isn't. But it is it's definitely something in the back of my mind when I look at uh, when I look at some of the things he does. You know, what personally does he have against the leadership or the, the individuals involved? Because... Uh, yeah, I mean, and you certainly might be right. Maybe he just doesn't understand. Maybe, but you know, he's pretty good about listening to. Well, okay, maybe I may go over the board there. He has the ability to listen to his advisors on things that he doesn't know. He will definitely form his own opinion and tweet as much uh, as he sees fit. Um, another question I had for you, Thomas, was you know this revolves around Amazon. One of the the points that was made in the article I read is ethics in the internet age. Bezos has made the point that our society hasn't fully adapted to the internet age. We have this incredibly powerful tool and we just don't quite know how to use it to its full extent yet. Um, And of course, the first thing that I think of ethics in the internet age is common decency between human beings. You know, when you talk to somebody face to face, there is uh, always the... That people who have been properly socialized will uh, act more decent 
uh, face to face than when you're hiding behind a computer screen. So if you go to you know the the dog pound that is Twitter, the the den of snakes, uh, you go in there and you make a statement, and people have no compunction whatsoever about just saying terrible things about you, your mother. Um, your entire ancestry line about how you know a terrible person you are, et cetera, et cetera, insert pejorative at will. And that seems to be the case of commenting on of certain points. So um, that's it goes beyond ethics. It's, it's decency, but I think there's a large part of ethics there too. So you know you as a big internet guy, I wanted you to get your take on what you thought about ethics in the internet age. It is true that as a society, we're still trying to figure out how it works. Uh, so like in the early days, you know, when somebody would send an email and you still see this in like corporate email, but you put the person's name at the top, then you write a letter and then you have like sincerely and then your name and maybe a postscript. So it, in the early days, it was basically exactly what you did with a paper letter. You just did it on the computer. And now the like to and from are in the application, right? When you get an email, there's a from field that tells you who it's from. It tells you, you know, who it's to. And so you're starting to see the dear Jim at the beginning drop away. And the dear is almost completely dropped away. So now it's just like Jim at the top. And then maybe you have a signature, maybe you don't, but uh, some email programs will even hide that signature or collapse it behind three little dots so that you don't see it by default. Uh, so that's, that's like a specific example of how slowly we're adapting to this new form of communication in terms of changing our etiquette. But there's a difference between etiquette and ethics. Um, how we're supposed to treat each other is, uh, doesn't really change from century to century. You know, the instructions that Jesus gave about doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's not like, oh man, that's this old fashioned rule. It doesn't apply anymore. It's like, no, that's pretty much as applicable now as it was back then. Maybe even more so, right? That th There's no tarnish on that guideline. So I think, you know, uh, as a Christian, you definitely receive the teachings of, of Christ from, uh, from the Bible and the golden rule. But I will say that the golden rule transcends Christianity um, it goes all the way back to in, in a in a in a uh, more aggressive setting, you know, back to Hammurabi's code. I think it's in our uh, to go kind of union on you. I think it's kind of in our uh, human DNA, an eye for an eye kind of fairness. So I think the do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I think it. Uh, I think it's. I think I would call that basic human decency that really transcends culture, religion, and even time. Yeah, the Bible actually would agree with you. So it talks about in Romans how the law is written on their hearts, their consciences bearing witness. And when people hear the golden rule for the first time, they don't typically say, oh, that's this new teaching. They're like, yeah, that seems right, because it's already written on their hearts. Like That's already, like, like you said, written into the DNA. We have an inherent sense of right and wrong, an inherent sense of Morality and it really doesn't change that much. Uh, you'd be shocked how little morality changes from culture to culture and from century to century. Uh, it will change around the edges, but it's often about the interpretations of like what is a person, what is not a person. So if you see a cow as a human person, or, or you will treat it with the respect due to human people. And if you see a foreigner as not a human person, then you won't. But what's not being questioned is that underarching um, principle of 
how do you treat other human people, right? You, you treat them as you would want to be treated. And one of the things that makes the internet interesting is that we often don't see other people on the internet as human people. And to explain this, uh, I want to uh, look at how we treat other cars. So when you're driving along the road, you don't see cars as people. You see them as cars, these lifeless uh, machines. And have you ever, like, when you made eye contact with another driver who's wanting to let you over, does it make you more likely to let him over or less likely to move him over? It almost always makes you more likely to let him over. It's like, roll down the window, make eye contact, let them see that you're a human, and then suddenly they're going to treat you with more courtesy. That's totally irrational. Every single car is driven by a human, but we have to be reminded that that person is a human inside that other car to treat them with that kind of respect. And on the early days of the internet, there's a lot of fear, uh, which is interesting because the internet was much safer then. (laughs) (laughs) People were terrified uh, to have their credit card information on the internet or whatever. And, And the way to be safe was to be anonymous. And what it created was this masquerade ball where everyone has a mask over their face, some false name that they're wearing. And what that mask functions as, that false name functions as, is the car wrapping around the person. And so I don't mind cutting you off because I'm not cutting you off, I'm cutting your car off. And the morality of do unto others as you would have them do unto you doesn't apply to cars, right? It only applies to people. And if I can dehumanize you, which and you're dehumanizing yourself if you're anonymized, then it makes it very easy for me to to act in a way that I normally wouldn't act. And that's what we see on the internet. And as somebody who's been on the receiving end of that, um, of having thousands of people hating on me on the internet uh, all at the same time, I was like, you know, there is a real person on the other side of that blog post <laughs> and uh, a, a person with real feelings. And it, I think that right now it's very easy to f- still forget that. It's like, oh, that person's a celebrity. That person's got a YouTube channel. So obviously they have a thick skin. It's like, that's not true. Uh, you know, and do we really want to create a culture where people have to have a thick skin because they're constantly being insulted all the time? I don't think so. And I think that in a, in a way, this is softening some. So Facebook, one of the good things Facebook did for the Internet is that it um, fought against the an- anonymity uh, of kind of Gen 1, Web 1.0. So with Facebook, you have to use your own name. And what you see with Right. I mean, you're required to. Not everyone follows the rules, but they do a pretty good job. Like most of the people I interact with on Facebook are using their own name. And the people there are relatively polite to their own friends. What the interesting result, though, has been is that you create these tribes where all of my friends are Republicans, let's say, and I have no problem calling Democrats, you know, monsters and traitors and they're bad Americans and their Democrat president is the Antichrist. And if I'm a Democrat and all my friends are Democrats, then I can dehumanize the Republicans and the Republicans are monsters and traitors and the Republican president is the Antichrist. <laughs> so, or Hitler, I guess, uh, is the even worse than the Antichrist and, and the Democratic worldview. And, um, so it's, we've, while we've made a step, in the right direction, I feel like we're still a long way and I'm not sure ultimately how to fix it. Uh, like how do we adapt these, this morality that we know is true to this new world where we're all wearing masks? It's a, it's an interesting question. Um, and what I simultaneously fear as well as recognize 
the probable, uh, maybe not necessity, but I, I think it's going to happen one way or the other, is eventually we're going to get to the point where the internet is going to be recognized, and it, it largely already kind of is going that way, as a public utility, much like a road, uh, where the and this is going to be a global utility where everybody has the right to be here, everybody has the right to use it, um, but you have to obey certain rules and laws. Um, and I think these are going to be, uh, largely based off in, in our nation anyway, it's going to be interesting to see how they, uh, how they are formed internationally, but, you know, within the United States where the internet was, was largely maybe not, uh, if not invented, it definitely grew up here. Um, is it going to form based off of our constitution, our bill of rights and our ideas of freedom, freedom of religion and speech, et cetera, et cetera. I think so. Yes. Uh, the individual countries who don't hold those uh, rights to be self-evident, I believe are probably going to, um, they're not going to be able to regulate the internet per se. I think that's going to fall on the United States of America to take the lead on. Uh, but uh, the, those those more authoritarian nations, I think, uh, like China has already done, are going to have to regulate the internet in whatever they, way they see fit. I'm, I'm going off on a tangent here. I think the point that I'm making is that at some point, I think the internet that is the Wild West will come under some type of regulation. Um, And I'm not smart enough on the internet to really go beyond that because there's questions that I have in my head such as, you know, um, to what point is the internet scarce? At what point will we run out of data centers and bandwidth, et cetera, et cetera? Stuff that you probably know that I don't know. But those are questions that have to be answered to really uh, to to go further into regulating the internet. Um, yeah. So well, I can answer that last question first. The internet is not going to get scarce. So while we are throwing stuff on it as fast as possible, it's getting bigger and faster even faster. So it's getting bigger and faster at an exponential rate and in ways that we didn't even anticipate at the beginning. So part of what brought down uh, the you know tech bubble in the early 2000s, we were laying all of this fiber optic cable underneath the oceans. You know, So you have a good fiber connection to India and you can send internet very fast down the cable. And what they found was that they were able to upgrade the boxes at the ends of the cable and make the existing cables go way faster. And we actually laid down more fiber than we needed for years. We had more fiber than we needed. And they found all kinds of clever ways where you're shooting this laser down the cable and they found you can shoot lasers in multiple colors simultaneously. And each one's got a different message and all, and make it blink faster and lots of things that are making the internet faster. So don't worry about running out of internet. <laughs> the internet, that, that would be like running out of oxygen. It's just the, the plants of the earth are making oxygen as fast as we can breathe it. And there's no fear of running out of oxygen. So don't, don't worry about that. Is there, is there anything that, is there anything physically that is going to limit the internet in the future? You know, as we grow in population, um, is there any aspect of, 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 of the, the internet that is going to be constrained by physics. So the communication of data is probably not going to be constrained very quickly because not only are we now sending messages over fiber optic cables and all the other, you know, types of cables, but with 5G internet uh, that's coming to the phones and that technology, now we'll be able to send messages just as fast over the air 
and there's lots of room in the air <laughs> to send messages. Not unlimited, granted, but but plenty. Uh, so I wouldn't. Uh, there's no uh, limit there. There may become limits eventually if we ever hit the end of Murphy's Law. Uh, so Murphy's Law is this principle that computers double every 18 months. So they get twice as fast. They can store twice as much stuff. Um, and that has been going on for like 40 years. So it's like everything doubles. So a server farm that used to be able to hold a terabyte, you know, 18 months later, it can hold two terabytes worth of data in this server farm. And then 18 months later, it's four terabytes and then it's eight terabytes and then it's 64 terabytes and then it's 128 terabytes. And suddenly it's just like this curve just goes straight up and suddenly you have to start using a different kind of byte. So now it's not terabytes, it's yottabytes and petabytes. And suddenly you've got a terabyte hard drive on your desk, <laughs> right? What, what used to be an entire building's worth of storage, you have in a little, tiny little box on your desk. Uh, so we have not hit the end of that. Everyone's been kind of wondering when we will. Uh, but as long as we keep doubling everything every 18 months, there's no running out of it. Uh, and not only is the capacity doubling, uh, but we also can, as we get more capacity, we can compress things. It gets very technical, but that's not something to worry about. But uh, what I worry about is governments regulating the Internet and how they regulate the Internet uh, in other countries. And I will say, if you've ever used the internet in another country, you realize it's very different. And the reason why it's very different is because the individual websites that you use are forced to be different by the local government. So Google and just by uh, economic pressures. So Google in Russia is very different from Google in the United States. Uh, Facebook in Russia is very different. And uh, while like libertybuzzer.com is the same, how are you going to find libertybuzzer.com if you're in Russia, right? If no one in Russia is talking about it, if the Russian government is blocking Liberty Buzzard on Russian Facebook, how do you even know about it to visit it? And the reality is most people spend most of their time on just a handful of websites and those websites are run by companies and the governments can control those companies because they can control the flow of money. Uh, into those companies from that country. And the only reason Facebook is in Russia is to make money off of Russians. And that's where the uh, Russian government is able to control uh, Facebook. <laughs>